Good morning, church. We are going to be in Jeremiah chapter 23 this morning. So you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Um, I thought uh, as Christmas is approaching, what better way to preach about Christmas than to look back at an Old Testament passage that points us there. And so that's what we're going to do this morning out of Jeremiah 23. So if you've got your Bibles, go there. Uh, and while you do, I'm going to set the stage, give you a little background uh, on the book of Jeremiah. And so uh, let me do that here. Jeremiah was uh, written by uh, Jeremiah roughly uh, 550 to 600 years before Jesus came. Jeremiah was from a small town. He served a small tribe. He was actually from a priestly line. His dad uh, was a priest, but Jeremiah never took that position as priest. He was a prophet, as Jeremiah chapter 1 tells us, during the reigns of Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Um, And uh, several of those kings, let's just say, were less than faithful. And so God calls Jeremiah as a prophet. And Jeremiah does something similar to what Moses did when Jeremiah's like, but I don't know how to speak. He just prefaces his by saying, for he's only a youth. So Jeremiah's, I don't know how to speak because I'm only a youth. And so God gives him some reassurance that whatever he's being called to do, God will be right there with him and he'll be able to do it. And so God gives him this reassurance. And then immediately following that, for the entire rest of the book of Jeremiah, we see a young man with a backbone calling out the people, calling out the leaders, calling out the kings, calling out uh, the priests, the shepherds, everybody uh, that God had told him to for whatever it was that they were doing wrong. Now, the beginning of his messages dealt with false worship, and they dealt with social injustice, and they came with it a call to repentance. As you notice, most of our prophets, when they speak, it comes with a call to repentance, and that's what we see here. Jeremiah was a prophet for roughly 40 years. Most of you guys know this. As a matter of fact, maybe you can tell me. What, what was Jeremiah known as? What was his nickname? The weeping prophet, right? He was known as the weeping prophet. And one of the re- I believe one of the reasons why was because he was a prophet for 40 years, uh, 40, not four, 40 years, and out of all of his years, there were maybe two positive responses to his message over 40 years. It mostly fell on deaf ears. He had maybe two people that responded positively to his message in 40 years. Can you imagine that? Thinking even as somebody that's in ministry, that's been in ministry for 10 plus years, I think about that and I'm like, I'm glad that I've seen more than two people respond to the message of Jesus in 10 years. 40 years, two people. One of them was his scribe, Baruch, and the other uh, was an Ethiopian eunuch named Ebed-Melech. And so uh, he had a difficult ministry, Jeremiah did. He had a difficult ministry. And in the passage we're going to look at today, It's uh, one of several chapters where Jeremiah is calling out the kings and the leaders of Judah. But in this specific passage, as he calls them out, what we see is that he reminds us of what the needs of the people are. That the people have some very specific needs, and in beautiful fashion, he points them forward to the one who is to come, who will meet all of those needs. So let's take a look at our scripture this morning, Jeremiah chapter 23. We're going to read the first eight verses. Depending on your translation, it may split them. Uh, Some of them split them into four and then give another heading for five through eight. Some of them keep them all grouped together. Um, They go together, and so uh, that's how we are teaching them this morning. They do go together. They fit perfectly. And so we're going to read Jeremiah 23, one through eight. It says, Woe to the shepherds 
who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. This is the Lord's declaration. By the way, you're going to see the phrase, this is the Lord's declaration, several times. Uh, Jeremiah wants to make sure they understand the messages from the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the shepherds who tend my people. You've scattered my flock. You've banished them. You've not attended to them. I'm about to attend to you because of your evil acts. This is the Lord's declaration. I will gather the remnant of my flock from all the lands where I've banished them, and I will return them to their grazing land. They will become fruitful and numerous. I will raise up shepherds over them who will tend them. They will no longer be afraid or discouraged, nor will any be missing. This is the Lord's declaration. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch for David. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Look, the days are coming, the Lord's declaration, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the land of the north and from all the other countries where I had banished them. They will dwell once more in their own land. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you this morning for your word. I pray that as we dive in, um, Lord, that we're able to uh, just hear a message directly from you. God, I pray that the words that are spoken are your words and your truth. And Lord, uh, I just pray that in all things, God, we're, we're pointed back to you. So God, speak to us how you need to this morning. Um, reach me, reach the rest of our congregation, Lord, as you see fit. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So I'm actually going to start this morning in the middle of the passage, as weird as that sounds. All right, there's eight verses. We're actually going to start in verse five, and the reason is because it's the central point of the entire passage. So we're going to start there, and we'll work our way back towards the beginning, okay? And so in verse five, it says, the days are coming when I will raise up a righteous branch for David. It's an interesting term, a righteous branch. And so we're going to start there. See, this is a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. Jesus was prophesied to come from the line of David. So being a branch from David is saying he's coming from the line of David, which he did. That term branch isn't used a ton in Scripture, but it's also found in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. It says, In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And so he's like a branch in that his beginnings are going to be small, right? Jesus comes with humble beginnings. He's going to small like a bud or a sprout, but he would grow up to be great. He'll grow up to be full of fruit. He's a branch that God will raise because he himself is righteous. See, he's a righteous branch. Many will be made righteous through Jesus. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, it even tells us that Jesus is the root of David, and so this reference that we see, this phrase in the middle of verse 5 in chapter 8 about raising up a righteous branch for David is referencing the coming Messiah that we know as Jesus. And so this verse is written 550 years or more before Jesus comes, but he fulfills it. 
And so these remaining verses that we're going to look at this morning, what, why, what do they tell us? Well, they tell us why that righteous branch was so necessary, why we need that righteous branch, why we need Jesus, why we needed a Messiah. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning. We're going to go back to verses 1 through 4. See, the righteous branch is Jesus. And so now we're going to look at the needs of the people. And as we do this, I want you to pay attention because the needs of the people here in Judah that Jeremiah is prophesying to are the same needs that you and I have. They don't change. And so I want us to be mindful of that as we look at this scripture. And so we're going to see how Jesus fulfills them. So verses 1 through 4, I'm not going to read all of them again, but I'll read the beginning. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. See, this is what the people needed. They needed a good shepherd. That's the first thing that the people needed, okay? They needed a good shepherd, and Jesus comes as the chief shepherd. And so we read here, these first four verses deal very clearly with shepherds. The shepherds that they're referring to, it could have been a a civil leader of some sort, but more than likely it's talking about religious leaders that were there as shepherds, that were supposed to take care of them, that were supposed to lead them towards God, that were supposed to help them along the way to protect them to do these things that a shepherd was called to do, but verses 1 and 2 give us a description of how these shepherds really were. These shepherds approved of and allowed division. They scattered the sheep. They sought their own well-being over that of the flock. If you look at verses, verse 4, it talks about not being afraid or discouraged. So these shepherds left the flock afraid and discouraged. They allowed the flock to wander and to go missing. They drove the flock away by their violence and their oppression. And they didn't care about the good of the flock. Verse 4 says, They caused the flock to be fearful and in danger. And so these re- the reality of wicked shepherds is that they lead people astray. And yes, there are wicked shepherds out there today. Right? Because shepherd, as we read about in the New Testament, is another term for pastor. And there are people that will lead people astray. And so he warns them against this. As a matter of fact, one thing that we know is that when sheep are left alone, they can't care for themselves. And these shepherds were leaving them on their own. Because once the sheep are scattered, they can't find their own food and water, and they're more vulnerable as prey for predators because they're isolated and on their own. And so these shepherds have neglected their duty and unattended the sheep. And when sheep are unattended, they scatter. Now, this isn't the only time in Jeremiah that he goes after the shepherds for their lack uh, of attentiveness towards the flock. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 21, it says, For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. And then in Jeremiah 12, verse 10, it says, The shepherds have destroyed the vineyard. See, it's, it's, a, it's a theme throughout the book of Jeremiah. And when it says that they're stupid, and they do, it's because of the fact they're trying to rely on themselves and being focused on themselves instead of inquiring of the Lord, instead of going to the Lord for the needs of the flock. They're ignoring it. And so these people have some bad shepherds. And so in light of these bad shepherds, God responds in three different ways. All right? And just like I told the first service, most sermons are three points. I'm giving you four. You get a bonus point. And these three I'm about to tell you right now aren't even a part of it. So you got extra bonus, all right? So there's three things that God does when he responds to these bad shepherds. The first thing he does, and we read about it in verses one and two, is that he says that he's going to attend to them for their evil deeds. So what does that mean? In other words, the bad shepherds are going to be judged. 
And so he tells us that in verse 2, but in verse 1, it starts off by using the term woe, W-O-E, and that term is often used to describe the judgment of God against sinners. And so God says, I'm going to hold these bad shepherds accountable for what they haven't done and what they have done. And so that's the first thing he says he's going to do. And then in verse 3, we see that God himself is going to gather the remnant together. So not only is he going to going to hold the shepherds accountable, but he's going to look after the flock. He's going to go, he's going to round up the remnant, which the remnant would be in reference to true followers of God, and he's going to bless them. But what's interesting is that the term remnant implies that not all of them are going to be brought back. You catch that? Remnant implies that it's going to be some scattered from here and here and here that I'm going to be grabbing, but it's not going to be everyone because some, some, are going to be gone because they were either destroyed by wolves or by predators or because they followed the voice of another. See, we're reminded in Scripture that God tells us that his sheep know his voice. And some of these sheep aren't going to be a part of the fold because they answered another voice. See, these sheep, they always belonged to God. These other shepherds were just under shepherds. And so God says he's going to bring them back. And then we get to verse 4, and this is the last thing that God does here in response to these bad shepherds. He says, he, he sets legitimate, genuine shepherds over them. So God doesn't just do away with the shepherds altogether because some of them are corrupt. He doesn't look and say, well, this was a bad idea on my part to put shepherds or uh, religious leaders over the people. He's like, no, this is a good idea. They just did a bad job. So now I'm going to put better ones over, ones that care about the flock, ones that desire to take care of them. And so he replaces the the bad ones with better, true shepherds that care for the flock. And this is going to result in the flock that has no fear of mistreatment or being lost. See, these shepherds God puts in place will seek to keep out the things that destroy the flock. They'll give them attention. They won't neglect them, but they'll show compassionate care towards them. That's the kind of shepherd they need. See, a good shepherd understands that sheep were made to live in a flock and not isolated on their own. So praise the Lord for faithful shepherds. And that's what God gives them. But he sets up these faithful shepherds who are going to feed and care for the sheep. And in some small measure, it's fulfilled through God's prophets and through uh, the pastors and, and others. But the ultimate fulfillment is in the good shepherd himself, Jesus Christ. And so this branch, this righteous branch of David is the chief shepherd that's going to solve their problem of having bad shepherds. And so he refers to that. And we see this throughout the Gospels as Jesus talks about shepherds, right? In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because they were sheep without a shepherd. They were wandering. In Matthew 26, verse 31 Jesus refers to himself as a shepherd that's going to be struck. And when he is, the sheep will scatter. And we know that to be the case upon his death when the disciples scatter. But then we get to John chapter 10. And it's a great parallel passage um, that speaks of Jesus as a good shepherd. And, uh, and I want to read that one with you. I believe that one should be uh, on there. There we go. It says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and he doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. 
Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and then there will be one flock with one shepherd. And then we read in Luke chapter 15, where Jesus says he is like a shepherd who seeks his sheep and rejoices over them. Contrast that with the shepherds we read about in verses 1 through 4. It's polar opposites. The shepherds they currently have couldn't care less. And Jesus not only says that he cares, he says, I know them. I'm willing to lay down my life for them. And then he talks about it being one flock. So he brings in Jews and Gentiles into the fold to be one flock with him as the chief shepherd. And then in Luke 15, he's rejoicing over his sheep and he seeks after them when they go, which is the contrary to what the shepherds have that they know right now. And then we get to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, which says, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. And that chief shepherd is referring to Jesus. And so as we celebrate Christmas, it's really a cool thought. We see it in Luke 2, with one of the recordings of Jesus' birth, um, who were some of the first to know about his birth? Shepherds, right? Some of the first to know about his birth are shepherds. And so these shepherds, it's almost like God kind of, he sends the angel to tell him. And, you know, I know exactly what scripture says here uh, that they say, but I can just imagine it being like, hey guys, the greatest example of a shepherd that ever existed, I want you guys to go see him. Your chief is here. Your leader is here. The one that you're supposed to emulate care over the flock, just like he cares for us, the one you're supposed to emulate is here, and I want you to go see him. What a great thought. If I'm those guys, I'm like, yeah, buddy, let's go. Let's get out of here. Let's go. We'll bring them with us because we're we're good shepherds, and we're not going to leave them astray. We're not going to leave them behind. We're going to bring them with us, but let's go. And so he delivers this message, and these shepherds get to go, and they get to see the chief shepherd shortly after his birth. See, the need of the people was for a good shepherd, and the righteous branch it refers to is the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. The second need we see is the need for a wise king. All right, it's the need for a wise king. And we see that in verse 5, okay, when it says that he will reign wisely as king. And so Jeremiah prophesied under the reigns of, it says in chapter 1, three different people, Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. So Josiah was the only faithful one. And I don't know if you know anything about Josiah, but uh, Josiah became king at the ripe old age of eight years old. All right? Can you imagine being eight years old and being the king? Like I was trying to think earlier, I was like, what kind of decrees would I put out as an eight-year-old king? Right? I'd be like, ice cream for breakfast, let's roll. Yeah, no school. I heard that from somewhere. Uh, right? like, you can just imagine. So he's got this eight-year-old king. So he's not mature yet as an eight-year-old, right? But uh, as, as he gets older and as he grows and as he remains the king, he becomes more faithful to God and he leads them to do things the right way. But once he was out, when he was no longer king, the two that followed were less than faithful. See, the king the people were most likely serving at this time was one that didn't seek justice and righteousness. They were kings that were unjust, kings that were oppressive, kings that didn't prosper. And so the people of Judah had flawed, unwise rulers. And so we read in verse 5 that the righteous branch will reign as a king. And so Jesus comes as the king of kings. 
Now, to be sure, when Jesus came the first time, Jesus didn't come and dethrone whoever was sitting on the physical earthly throne, right? He didn't come. He didn't kick Herod or whoever out of the throne uh, at that time. He didn't displace them and go sit in a position of power and authority. He came humbly as the lowest of the lows. In fact, there were times, there were plenty of times, and I know you guys are aware, that there are plenty of times where people wanted to stone Jesus or kill him, right? They were looking for reasons to kill Jesus or whatever. There were also times where it said they were going to take him and make him king. And Jesus left. He didn't let him. See, he came as king, but not the kind of king they were looking for. Those that knew the scriptures expected the Messiah to be a political king, one with riches, one with power, one with might and authority, one who would overtake whatever king happened to be ruling. But that wasn't his plan when he came the first time. But when he returns, when he comes again, and y'all know he's coming, when he comes again, he's going to take his place on the throne. He's going to rule as king, and every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, Jesus coming to earth as God in the flesh, as he did 2,000 years ago, fulfilled God's plan of salvation. But his second coming reveals that those who accept that plan are going to spend eternity with him under his kingship in a new heaven and new earth with no sin and no pain and no heartache on a place that's hard for us to even fathom. See, Jesus will set up a kingdom in the world and it will be victorious over all opposition. He'll have a a perfect rule of holy living. But when he came 2,000 years ago, he didn't come as an earthly king, but he was still our heavenly king. And as we read about Jesus' birth in Matthew 2, the wise men ask, where is the one born what? The king of the Jews. They knew. They knew he was king. They even referenced him as such in Matthew chapter 2. And then they present him with gifts that are fit for a king. See, they recognized from the start that he was a king, just like Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 23. And so the need of the people was for a king. They needed one that would rule righteously, that would rule justly. And Jesus fulfilled that as a wise king that sought to execute justice and righteousness. The third need that we see in this passage is a means of righteousness, okay? Uh, A means of righteousness. And Jesus comes as our righteous Lord. At the end of verse 6, we see that it says, this is the name he's going to be called. He's going to be called the Lord is our righteousness. And that is actually a play uh, on the, the name of the current king at the time. The king Zedekiah at the time, his name meant the Lord is my righteousness. So it's a slight play on the words, but Zedekiah was a flawed, sinful ruler. And Jesus is a perfect Lord. A perfect, righteous, holy Lord. Zedekiah failed to live by the symbolic meaning of his name, but the remnant, those that are the faithful, true followers of God, will put their trust in the Lord. And God and Jesus himself will be the source of their righteousness and their salvation. See, because he is the Lord, our righteousness, he becomes our righteousness like nothing else and no one else could. See, Jesus isn't himself just righteous, but he's the basis of our righteousness. We can't be made righteous apart from Jesus. Our best is like filthy rags, but Jesus' best is perfection. 
His righteousness is a sovereign, all-sufficient, eternal righteousness. And all our righteousness has its beginnings in him, and it's only in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By this name Israel will call him. Every true believer will call him. Every true believer will call upon his name as the Lord is our righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. It's not my righteousness that gets me anything, but Jesus is my righteousness. It's found in him. And they had a need for righteousness. They had a need because they understood at that point as they continued to try and try, or in this case they didn't because they didn't want to heed the message that nothing they do could give them the righteousness they desired or that they needed. It was a need for the people. Let me get to the last need, all right? told you I was giving you a bonus. Here's the bonus. The last need that they had is a Savior, and Jesus comes as the Savior. See, in verse 6, it says, In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And so it talks about being saved, both Judah and Israel. And then in verses 7 and 8, it reminds us of how God saved the Israelites in Egypt but that this salvation is going to be greater than the one that happened in Egypt those years ago. See, he's going to gather his people, and they're going to dwell where they were meant to dwell. And so as amazing as that salvation from Egypt was, it's going to pale in comparison to the great salvation that is to come. See, verse 8 says, The Lord will rescue the flock by gathering them together and having them dwell together. What these last two verses show is that the identity of the people is going to change. See, they were looking at the salvation of their ancestors from physical, physical captivity. That's what they were banking everything on. But this passage is saying that salvation, this salvation is greater. It's for each of you now, and it's an eternal spiritual salvation. And so when we identify Jesus as our chief shepherd and as our wise, true king, the king of kings, then our identity is in something much greater than even the miracles of the past. It's in our past, present, and future king. This gathering and dwelling together as a result of salvation in Jesus will take place for eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. Acts 4.12 says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is through no one else. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's through Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. And that's who we celebrate at Christmas, the coming Savior. See, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. In Hebrews 5, Verse 9, it says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so Jesus does that, and he does that by paying the price for our sins. So when Jesus takes on flesh as God, he comes as God in the flesh, and he lives this perfect life in perfect submission to his heavenly Father, and he dies, and he raises again three days later to satisfy God's wrath for your sin and for my sin so that we can be saved and made righteous through Jesus. He is the source of our salvation. Through no one else can we be saved. Let me close this morning. 
See, Jeremiah is saying these things that you lack right now, these things that you're missing, these needs that you have, they're going to come. A legit shepherd, a wise king, a righteous Lord, and a Savior, they're going to come, and they're going to come in the form of the righteous branch from David, one that will meet all of the needs of the flock. See, Jesus is not only our shepherd king, but he's our righteous Savior. And as a result of us living in the times that we are, we have access to Jesus as all of these things. And this promise that was made between 600 and 550 B.C. was fulfilled when Jesus came. And our God always keeps his promises. Amen? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, All the promises of God are yes and amen. So if God promises it, it's a guarantee it's going to happen. And that promise that he made through Jeremiah to the people of Judah came. And was fulfilled. And that's why we have Christmas. There were so many needs that we couldn't meet on our own. And Jesus came to earth. And in doing so, not only did he meet those needs, but he gave us a chance at a right relationship with God. I believe the term is a Merry Christmas. I think that was the merriest of Christmases. I want to leave you with a thought. A reminder Everything you need, everything I need, we have in Jesus. That's it. We have it in Jesus. If you're still trying to control and guide your own life today, give it to the chief shepherd who leads you to still waters. If you're relying on your own wisdom today, lean not on your own understanding, but seek the wisdom of the wise king. If you're still trying to earn your way through righteous works, let Jesus be your righteousness. And today, if you're still trying to save yourself and are denying your need for a Savior, I pray that your eyes are open and that you'll accept the greatest gift you could ever receive this Christmas, the gift of salvation. Let's pray together. God, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you that you provide all of our needs. Lord, I thank you that you came, Lord, as in a humble, lowly state. God, not to prove some sort of point about how great and miraculous you are, but God, to give us an example of the humility it takes to submit our lives to you. God, we know that salvation is only through you, that righteousness exists only through you. Lord, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the wonderful counselor. And God, this morning, we want to take this time to just dwell on your word. We thank you for using the prophet Jeremiah in a mighty way that you did. We thank you for his faithfulness. And Lord, just for giving us the amazing gift of your word that we can study, that we can learn, that we can draw close to you. So we thank you for our time this morning.